There's so much energy in this room this morning. I think everyone's excited about the holiday weekend. Do you know it was a holiday weekend? Oh yeah, it's um, tomorrow is the big day, the feast day of Saint Bertha. <laughs> Everyone, uh, we go big here for the feast day of Saint Bertha. Everyone shoots off fireworks. It's crazy. I hope y'all have a good holiday weekend. Okay. So, uh, the year was 1346. Some of us remember it well. The the French were. Uh, French soldiers were coming up on a decade fighting against the English in what would become the Hundred Years' War, which actually lasted 116 years. The French, uh, under the leadership of King Philip VI, boasted the most powerful cavalry in Europe. These French knights striding the hills on horseback um, were the most powerful force in Europe. They'd mastered the art of chivalry. Chivalry dictated the terms by which these fighters sought honor and glory and ultimately victory in battle. Chivalry told them to fight hand to hand through jousts and charges. This was how wars were fought for as long as anyone could remember. And the French were the best in all of Europe. So when these 12,000 knights met the forces of the English, only 4,000 men at arms and foot soldiers, at the Battle of Crecy, they, they didn't expect to face any trouble. What's 4,000 men compared to the strongest cavalry force in all of Europe? What they didn't consider, though, is that uh, in addition to the 4,000 soldiers, there were 10,000 English longbowmen positioned up on the banks. They didn't fight according to the rules of chivalry. The longbow was not taken seriously by the French army, they didn't use it, um, they didn't plan for it, they didn't base their strategies around it. The longbow was cheap, it was lightweight, it was cowardly, it didn't, uh, it didn't follow the laws of chivalry. And so the French basically ignored it as an innovation of war. The valiant French knights, their courage quickened by this spirit of chivalry and glory and battle, they began their first charge against the English. One by one, they fell before even reaching the front line of English soldiers. The bowman's arrows stopped them in their tracks. They gathered whoever was left and prepared a second charge. They didn't stop to strategize. They didn't reassess the situation. They didn't change plans because of any new circumstances. They just doubled down and tried again. And again, they failed. So they went for a third charge and a fourth. It was devastating for the French army. Then this, this time in battle, the winners were not the champions of chivalry, but the champions of attention, who kept their focus on, on victory and not glory. Stuck in the modes of the past, the French just kept trying to apply the old system directly onto the current moment, with no attention to what the moment demanded, and it cost them dearly. They failed to recognize that chivalry was dead. I bring up this story because as we are working our ways through Ezra and Nehemiah, the challenges that faced these soldiers face our protagonists as well. In our passage today, the Israelites led by Ezra are facing a problem. As they return from exile in Babylon, 
and are rebuilding the Jerusalem temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians, they have found that some people in their groups have begun to intermarry with so-called peoples of the land. Scholars have come to believe that this phrase, the peoples of the lands, describes a mixed bag of people, some of whom were Jews that never left during the exile. Um, they stayed behind and kind of transformed their culture as cultures transform over hundreds of years. Some were other nations that had been brought to the land by the Assyrians or Babylonians. Many of them worshipped the God of Israel and wanted to be included in the religious life of the New Jerusalem Temple. But all of them also worshipped other gods other than Yahweh. And as the prophets explained, it was in part the weakening of the connection between Israel and Yahweh that made Israel most vulnerable to the oppression of the Babylonians. So now as the exiles reestablish themselves and build a new temple, they feel a need to stay singularly connected to God and avoid idolatry. So this problem of intermarriage raises concerns for this attempt to stay singularly connected to God. We need to remember as we engage in this text that marriage in this culture at this time in history is not what marriage is today. This wasn't a mutual and consensual commitment based on love and dedication and covenant. Marriage was more about families and peoplehood and property. And regardless of, a, of a, if a marriage crossed national boundaries or not, women had basically no say in the matter. Marriage is, is, a, is a different sort of cultural artifact in, in this culture than it is in our culture. We need to keep that in mind as we read this text. Otherwise, the concern won't make much sense. The question here was not quite, who is it acceptable to love, as questions of marriage have been in recent centuries, but more, who are we going to become? That's the question of intermarriage facing the Israelites. In last week's sermon, Dr. Stephen Chapman, uh, my Old Testament professor from Duke, gave a really, really helpful historical and cultural framing of the reasons why intermarriage posed such a threat to these Israelites. Um, that sermon is available if you um, want to dig more into that. It's on Spotify. But the question of the moment was what sort of people will we become? What will our connection be with the God who has created us and helped us as a people for so long? What will our relationship be with the outside world? Intermarriage kind of represented the focal point of all of these questions. And Ezra, who is a religious leader of Israel and who has spent a long time studying and reading the books of Moses, he is so crushed by these intermarriages and what they represent regarding the people's dedication to God, that he prays in confession and weeps at the temple at evening sacrifice. The Israelites see Ezra crying. And if you can imagine the scene, you're at an evening sacrifice. This is something they do all the time. This is a regular part of the ritual life of the community. But suddenly there's a person, your leader, who falls on the ground and starts weeping. Maybe you kind of walk up and tap them on the back and say, hey, buddy. What's, what's the matter? They could see that this man who, who knew God, they knew that he knew God really deeply, and he was heartbroken. He was heartbroken by something they had done, or at least some of the people in their community had done. And when he tells them what's wrong, they don't react to him by telling him he's overreacting. They don't tell him to focus on the good things that we're doing. 
They don't tell him to focus on the plus sides of the current administration in Israel. They don't immediately get defensive. How often do we hear the news that we are harming someone, that we are sinning against someone, and immediately rush to self-defense and justification? I think that this happens on a personal level as well as sort of a societal level. Um, so like, for example, sometimes um, my wife Gwen will be hurt about something and I care about her, so I will go and try to see what's wrong and comfort her. But then she shares with me that she's hurt by something I did. So naturally, this changes the situation. <laughs> I need to inform her <laughs> that she has simply misinterpreted my words and actions and that uh <laughs> and that really everything i've done is rational and justified and perfectly fine <laughs> my initial impulse is to defend myself to, to find the reasons why it's okay that i did what i did and to justify my behavior it takes a long time for me to get to a point where i can just own the responsibility for the ways that i've hurt gwen this happens on a societal level too Right? How, how many of us feel perfectly prepared to call out the injustices inflicted by other nations and by other cultures, but never our own? It's easy to condemn atrocities committed by China, but not recognize the victims of America. This is something that every culture will have to navigate and deal with. No culture goes through history without victims, and without a readiness to recognize those victims, we are not ready to recognize our own sin. The Israelite leaders don't do that. To their credit, they see Ezra's pain, they feel the pain too, and they want to respond to fix it. Their immediate reaction is to propose a plan. It's not a good plan. The, the plan is we're gonna mandate mass divorces and send the women and children away. We don't care what happens to them. This isn't a good plan. Like, thank you for recognizing the problem. Wow, you made it worse. The purpose of their plan is to just undo what has been done. We married into foreign families and had children. Well, let's undo all of those marriages and send the children away. While they were faithful in seeing a problem, and while their hearts were united with God in the pain over their abandonment of God's covenant, they were trying to move backwards to just rewind what had happened. They're trying to move to a life before exile, but restoration is not rewinding. There's an early theologian in the, in the first few centuries of the church named Irenaeus, who was the first to articulate this idea that God's plan for restoration of the world is not a plan for rewinding the world. Right? There, there is not an idealistic golden age like Eden that God is trying to drag us back into. Rather, Eden represented something good but unfulfilled. Rather, there's something new that God is trying to do, something new that God is inviting us into, and that takes attention and creativity to identify. But Ezra and the leaders, they would have caught on to this if they had been reading the prophet Zechariah a little bit more closely. Last week, Dr. Chapman described the book of Ezra and Nehemiah as the struggle for a temple and the struggle for a wall. That's, that's the central storyline of these books. And yet in Zechariah chapter 2, 
When the prophet describes God's intention for the restoration of Jerusalem, he describes it as a city without walls. He says, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. God will be the protection. God will be the, the gatekeeper. But actually, the gates won't be kept as tightly as the Israelites are trying to keep them. In our passage today, there's a legitimate concern that the nature of Israelite worship will be lost in the, in the sort of melting pot of, of modern empire. And so their response is to just close down the borders, to victimize the women and the children, setting religious devotion over the health and well-being of the women that were already in vulnerable situations in their community. Right? Their response is to, to rewind and to drag backwards to what life was like before. But again, we read in Zechariah chapter 2, many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. This is an image of the restoration of Jerusalem that includes many nations. Right? It doesn't police which nations can be included. It pulls them all in to the new thing that God is doing. They wanted to rewind, but God wanted to restore into something new. And they, they take these past dangers and past methods and past threats and past expressions of obedience, and they try to map them directly onto their current situation. We can see this as clear as day in verse 2 of our passage, when the leaders of Israel, they, they make this connection between the modern peoples of the land, and they, they give this list of people. It says the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. And if you're reading this in your daily reading, you might blow right through those names. But for attentive readers, these names sound familiar. If you've ever read through the story of Exodus, these names sound really familiar. These are the peoples that were living in the land that God was calling the Israelites to 800 years before the book of Ezra was written. So the leaders of Israel come to Ezra and they say, we've intermarried with these people, and they list the people groups from 800 years ago. And what's happening is that they are imagining themselves as living through a new exodus. When the ancient Israelites, centuries before this text was written, were going through the exodus from Egypt, there were threats, legitimate threats, all around them. They just narrowly escaped slavery, and they were now at risk of losing all connection with God and their own culture if they got swallowed up by any of these other powerful nations of the Canaanites and of the Egyptians. And so in Exodus 34, God warns them not to intermarry. And it's a pretty firm warning. Because when they intermarry, as we've discussed, this changes who they are as a people and their connection to God and their connection to the ritual of their cultural worship before God will be weakened and eventually lost. But fast forward nearly a millennium and our exiles are trying to map their situation directly onto that one. They're so dedicated to reading the Torah and to applying it. They don't have an attentive eye towards the challenges facing the Israelites from 800 years ago and the challenging challenges facing them today. 
These peoples of the lands that the modern, modern, <laughs> modern Israelites are facing, they aren't anything like the Canaanites from 800 years ago. They are mostly Jews, or at least they worship Yahweh to some degree. They're not more powerful than these exiles. These exiles have the, the permission and funding of Cyrus of Persia, right? These exiles kind of hold the power. They kind of hold the cards. But they're not able to recognize that. It's true that most of these other, other peoples of the lands are worshiping false gods, but these groups are so small and disparate that they don't pose the existential threat that the Canaanites posed 800 years ago. So they're taking this old threat and this old situation and trying to map it directly onto their current situation. And they're not slowing down to listening to God's creative plan for restoration. And besides, I think that these people are also actually missing an opportunity for the fulfillment of what Zechariah described when he said that the city of God will be composed of many nations. It's a city that is so inclusive and expansive that it has no walls. You can't measure it. God is trying to build something new here out of the amalgamation of people from all corners of the earth. And the Israelites miss it. They put up their walls. They reinforce their boundaries. They send away the women and children. God knows what happened to them. Even in the Torah, which Ezra has been studying all these years, the Israelites are explicitly told that foreigners are to be included and folded into the life of temple worship and feasts. That's in Deuteronomy 16.11. But the Israelites have this rigid and anxious reading of Scripture that, that seems to lead them away from the restorative opportunities that God is presenting to build the new vision of what God has in mind. Jesus describes this sort of situation as trying to pour new wine into old wineskins. The old wineskin can't hold it. When the old wineskin bursts, it's the women and children who pay the cost. Isn't it a good thing that the Old Testament problems don't have any relevance for today? It's nice that we've moved past this victimizing women and children in, in a misguided and harmful attempt to do something faithful. Thank goodness. This is, this is a very different thing. What they're doing is a very different thing from ignoring tradition and wisdom from the past. I don't want you to mishear me. That, that, that's not what I'm suggesting. We won't get very far in our quest towards union with God without learning from wise people who have come before us. But learning from tradition does not require us to be blind to the circumstances and needs and activities of God in the moment. These leaders, they just make their plan and blaze ahead. They decide to send away the women and children. They, victims of exile themselves, decide to exile the people most vulnerable in their community. And then the book ends. Just end of story, right? We've reached the end of Ezra. Yeah, you tell me. <laughs> it just ends with women and children being forcibly removed from, from the community. And the, the, it's almost like the author is just holding this up, saying, you tell me, <laughs> you deal with this. <laughs> There's no easy answers. There's no resolutions. 
they send away these vulnerable people and the author is just like, yeah, that seems like a good place to leave it. It's so anticlimactic and it leaves you with this sense of confusion and frustration. But before the book ends, there's this little detail that stands out like a sore thumb if you're reading closely. It's this little glimmer of hope. There are two names mentioned here, only two out of the whole group of Israelite leaders who oppose this plan. In verse 15, which we didn't read, we're told that Jonathan and Josiah, we don't get any more information about them, they oppose this plan. And that's all we're told. And I don't think that they are opposing the plan because they don't care about the Torah. I don't think they oppose it because they don't recognize the problem. I don't think they oppose it because they're caught up in the spirit of the times and have forgotten the heart of God. But rather, I think it's precisely because they know the heart of God that they oppose it. Now, it's not clear how strongly they oppose it. I'm not sure how hard they tried to stop the leaders from mandating all of these divorces and sending the women and children away. Maybe they were casual objectors and then eventually shrugged it off and went home. But whatever the case, we can assume that their objection was at least loud enough to end up in the book. This isn't something they kind of quietly, mentally had discomfort with. They made at least enough noise to end up in the book. Now, I think that this text has two lessons for us. There's a lesson in paying attention to God in this moment and not getting stuck in the patterns of the past. For when we find ourselves in Ezra's position, or in the Israelite leader's position, right? Well, we, there will be times when we have a significant amount of power and decision-making and influence. And there's a lesson in here for that. But there's another lesson for when we are paying attention, when we are seeking God with everything that we've got, and we're, we're paying attention to the demands of the moment, but we're powerless. I think Jonathan and Josiah have a lesson for us there. And maybe the only lesson is just to be loud enough in our opposition that we at least end up in the book. That when the story is over, it can't be completely told without including our opposition. What use is a God-given voice if you don't use it? As a person paying attention to God, listening closely for God's voice, studying the character of God, and seeing the suffering of the people that God loves, you have caught a vision of the restoration that God is bringing. And if you see your community or your world or even yourself moving against that restoration, use your voice. And don't just use your voice, right? There may also be times to resist. We don't just charge up the hill for the third time and the fourth time because we're told to. We don't just face the shower of arrows just for the sake of preserving an old way. Instead, in, in prayerful and humble attention to God, we're called to be ready to see the new thing that God is trying to do. Let's pray. Dear God, I'm thankful for this community. 
we pray that as we um, as we seek to act in the world, as we seek to be people who are attentive, that you will show us who you are, that you will show us what you're trying to do, and that you will draw us back into you and into one another and into ourselves in ways that remind us of your restorative work. In Jesus' name, amen.